Please take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. And I would direct your attention to that section that begins at verse 14. Matthew 25. You know this parable well, but we'll read from verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his his journey. And he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. For thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee uh, that thou art a hard man reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, this is known to most of us as the parable of the talents, and our our English word talent comes from Old English, which is derived from Latin, which was derived from Greek, actually from the Greek word that's in our text here. And we recognize, of course, that at the time that Jesus was speaking, uh, a talent referred to a weight of money. So it referred to a weight of money, like silver or or gold, but our, our contemporary use of usage of the word talent has, of course, developed and changed. So we speak about those with artistic talent, or you speak about a talented entrepreneur, or, or something like that. And really, that development reflects something of the influence of the Bible on the English-speaking people. We use talent now to refer to ability, or capacity, or gifts, or endowments, and we even extend it to other resources that we have, our health, our learning, our time, our property, our energy, and so on. 
Well, this evening, my intention is, is actually not to preach this whole parable uh, with all of its details. Uh, rather, my intention with the Lord's help is to draw out what I think are some salient points that are often passed over or at least not emphasized in the reading and exposition of this particular parable. And we're able to do that, I think, um, by transitioning our attention to the Lord in the parable and not primarily or exclusively, as the case is sometimes, to his servants. So we transition our attention and focus to the Lord in the parable, uh, even more so than his servants. And by doing so, we get, I believe, a clearer picture of the nature and really the heart if you will, of Christian stewardship. So we're going to note three things this evening as we apply our our hearts and minds to the consideration of of this text. First of all, the Lord's goods. So we begin, first of all, with the Lord's goods. You'll notice how Jesus uh, directs our focus at the opening of the parable. He says in verse 14, "'For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country.'" who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods, right? It opens with the focus on what's described in verse 14 as a man, but throughout the rest of the parable, he is referred to as the Lord. Indeed, the servants address him even as as Lord. And this, of course, is a reference to our Lord, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who's who's being figured in this uh, particular parable, and he, of course, has gone away into a far country. He's gone into heaven and left his people uh, under his direction and so on. And you'll notice in verse 14 that he called his own servants, his own servants, and delivered unto them his goods. This is about him, his people, and his stuff, his, his goods. So these were not strangers, These were not uh, mere hirelings, but they were actually those slaves that are owned by the Lord, those who would have been part of his own household. And that does something for us, doesn't it? It conveys for us immediately what, what we ought to expect in terms of a sense of loyal attachment, right? This relationship should be one of loyal attachment and devotion, In fact, you'll see how this is reflected later in how they saw him and indeed in his response to them. It reflects some of what we would have be led to to, to anticipate. But furthermore, you'll notice in verse 14, the talents are not theirs. They're not the servant's talents. They are, as verse 14 says, his goods. And they remain so. Indeed, as you read through the whole parable, from beginning to end, they remain the Lord's talents. So you get to verse 25, and the the wicked servant is saying, I hid thy talent in verse 25. In verse 27, the Lord speaking himself says uh, that uh, he refers to it as his own, right? So he speaks of my money and mine own. So it's, it's obviously the Lord's that's the focus here. 
And this, 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 this rivets our gaze if we're approaching this parable as it unfolds for us. He is placed first. Our focus is on him. The, what we're speaking of here is the Lord's goods, the Lord's own stuff. And this cuts uh, against the grain of the natural man. It cuts against the grain of how people typically think. People think, for example, as we see in Psalm 49, verse 6, that they trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches. Verse 11, their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Right, so there's this sense within natural man to think it's stuff is mine. I am my own person, my own gifts, my abilities, my endowments, my time, my energy, my health, my resources. It's mine. It belongs to me definitively, first and finally. It is, it is all mine. And the problem is that this unbelieving and worldly way of thinking seeps its way into the house of God. And the Lord warns us of that. He speaks to his own people in Deuteronomy chapter 8, and he says in verse 12, Lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwell therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied, thine heart, then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. So it's a warning even to those within the church, to think in terms of what is ours. Whereas this parable is telling us clearly that all we are, all we have, is actually the Lord's. And so we are owned by the Lord. And as a consequence, everything that is lent to us must be devoted to his cause. It must be devoted to his interests. It must be devoted to his kingdom, never to our own interests and our own pursuits. Indeed, one of the lessons and way of contrast here is seen in the wicked servant. The wicked servant focused on his own skin. He focused on himself, verses 24 and 25. And in attempting to secure and save his life, he lost everything, and perished, as verse 28 and 30 tell us. So people think to themselves, you know, what, what do I want to do with my life? What, what, what do I want to do with my life? You know, what do I want to pursue and achieve for myself? And in doing so, there's a lost sight of the Lord who is front and center. The fact is, you and I don't have a life. We are owned by the Lord. That's, that's true in a twofold way. All of the sons of Adam, everyone, whether they're converted or not converted or Christian in the house of God or not, all people are owned by the Lord by creation. They're his property. And they are to render what he is, is due. But a Christian is also owned by redemption, owned twice over by creation and redemption. We have been bought with a price, and therefore we're to glorify him with our body and with our, our spirit. And so we belong to the Lord. 
we are the Lord's goods, as well as everything that he has lent to us. And so talents, in terms of this parable, are never ours. You know, we, we, we're not to think our gifts, our abilities, our graces, our property, our time, our energy is our own. And this gets to a root problem, right? The root problem isn't on the service. The root problem is actually in our mind. The root problem is something that has to change in our hearts. There, there are internal changes that have to take place. And it's the relationship between the, the idea of stewardship and ownership. We're never, ever, ever, ever to allow ourselves to stop thinking in terms of stewardship. It should be the air we breathe. It should control and guide and direct everything we think about who we are and what we do. We should never transition from thinking in terms of stewardship to thinking in terms of ownership, that we actually own anything. Our, and I'm speaking of intangibles, not just the tangibles. Our talents, our gifts, our graces, our time, all of those things. It all belongs to the Lord. We are merely stewards. And that becomes clear when we begin by putting the Lord of the parable at the center. It's the Lord's goods that we're talking about. We see that from the outset here. Secondly, we see the Lord's generosity. So secondly, the Lord's generosity, verse 15, again toward the beginning, and unto one he gave, notice, to every man according to his several ability. He gave, the Lord gave, to every man according to his several ability. Now the Lord had no obligation whatsoever to give anything. It's his. It's his to give and withhold. He has no obligation to give anything. The Lord is actually extending privilege. He's giving to those who, who have not, who lack, stewardship of what is not their own, bestowing on them opportunities of service out of his own personal bounty. This is the generosity of the Lord, bestowing opportunity for serving the Lord, out of the Lord's own personal bounty. And of course, the Lord disperses as he sees fit. To one he gives five, to another he gives two, to another he gives one. But in doing so, it's not arbitrary. He's doing it with perfect wisdom. Our Lord does disperse according to his perfect wisdom and according to the capacity and design that he has given to each one. Paul picks up on this, doesn't he? In Ephesians chapter 4, where you see it stated plainly in verse 7, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And so the Lord entrusts us with his talents so that we, by his grace, can make gains for his glory. Right? Improving, multiplying his own cause, his own interests. Now you think of this is the Lord's generosity and giving privilege. We, we understand this. You know, young people try out for a team and they make the cut. 
they're added to the team. They think, well, this is a privilege. Or, you know, a young person applies to a university. I'm not sure if I'm going to get in. Their application is accepted. They think, well, it's a privilege that I've been uh, admitted to this university. Or someone, you know, applies for a job and there's a lot of competition and they don't know. And they're actually chosen and they get the job. And there's a sense of, of privilege in that. Well, what is it really? Really, it's an invitation to a truckload of work. In any of those illustrations, now you have the privilege of working super, super hard in this particular function, whatever it may be. But we still have a sense of it, don't we, that it is a privilege. It's the Lord's generosity that he gives us any place and any space whatsoever to be employed in his service, to be used for his glory, to, to be serviceable in the advance of his, his own kingdom. And this, this is sort of accentuated. What, what ends up being emphasized is what happens with the servants. But really what happens with the servants accentuates this very point. Because if you look at the contrast, on one, you take one, you know, on one side, take the, the, the fellow with five talents, right? Verse 21. And then contrast with what's given rather lengthy description, verses 26 to 30, of the unfaithful servant. And notice, there's six points of contrast here. For the one with five, the Lord says, well done. Whereas with the man with one talent, he's described in verse 30 as unprofitable, worthless, utterly worthless. The one with five is described as good, a good servant. The one with one talent is described as wicked, the opposite of good. The one with five talents who improved them is described as faithful, whereas the one who squandered the one talent is described as slothful in verse 26. The one with five talents is told, look, you were faithful, with, you were faithful over few. And the one with, that squandered the one talent in verse 27, he's saying, look, you didn't even do the bare minimum. You ought to have at least put my money into the exchangers. So you're the opposite of being faithful over a few. In terms of reward, he says to the one with five, you're going to be a ruler over many. Whereas he says in verse 28 to the unfaithful servant, take the one talent from him. What you have is being removed and give it to the one with five talents. And then lastly, he says, enter into the joy of thy Lord. Joy, by way of contrast, the unfaithful servant is told, cast him into outer darkness, weeping, the opposite of joy, weeping, and the gnashing of, of teeth. You see the Lord's response, the, the, the contrast between these. But here we come to what I think is the root of the problem. And here I think, you know, in terms of understanding this parable with the Lord of the parable at the center, we now have emerging the root problem. Because you, you can focus on what the wicked servant did. You know, he, he didn't improve it, he didn't multiply it, he didn't even take it to the exchangers and get interest on it or whatever else. But we're given more than that in this text, and it highlights something about the Lord himself. We're told the reason why the reason why he did what he did. And this is given prominence by the amount of space that's given in the heart of this parable. Notice what it comes down to. 
how he viewed his Lord. The heart of the problem is not what he did, but why he did it. And why he did it is rooted in how he viewed his Lord. In verse 24, he says, Lord, I knew thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, gathering where thou hast not strawed. Thou art a hard man. That is, can be translated harsh or severe or stern. Thou art a, 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 a severe man. You'll notice that when, when the Lord quotes him in verse 26, he doesn't repeat that part. He doesn't say that he's a hard man. Just note that. But he goes on. The servant says, reaping uh, where you haven't sown, gathering where you haven't strawn or scattered, which, which the Lord does, does repeat. And then the servant says, I, verse 25, and I was afraid. I was afraid, and so I hid thy talent. So here we're given, it's stated and it's repeated by, by the Lord. It's given a good bit of space. Right? This is bringing us to the heart, and that is how he viewed his Lord. How did he view his Lord? And actually it's mixed. How he viewed the Lord is mixed, and what he did with it in both cases is wrong. So first of all, he says, I knew, and in this case, he knew rightly. He says, I knew that it was, he knew that it was his Lord's pattern. He knew, rather, his Lord's pattern of fruitfulness and of productivity. He knew his Lord's pattern, that it was his Lord's will and way to be fruitful and to, 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 for there to be productivity in the advance of his cause. So the servant knew that much, and he knew it rightly, and he refused to comply with what he knew his Lord wanted. He was not motivated by what he knew of his Lord. He was not responsive to honor and to please his Lord. In other words, there was no love for his Lord, which is why he's called a wicked servant. There's no love. But the Lord also says more than that, not just a wicked, the true problem, a wicked and slothful servant. He's lazy. He's interested in himself, not his Lord's interests. He's interested in what's comfortable and easy. He's interested in what's safe without risk. He's interested in his own pleasure, but he's indolent. He's lazy, right? It's a lack of will, not a lack of ability. The problem wasn't his inability, it was his unwillingness. And so there's this, this laziness that's born out of a lack of love for his, 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 his um, master. And he says, I feared. But it's a slavish fear. It's not a filial fear. It's a slavish fear that he has, not a filial fear of the Lord. Godly fear, so a godly fear would be very good motivation. But instead, it is, it is reflective of a legal heart. And consequently, he fears. And as a consequence of his laziness and his lack of love and his, his slavish fear, even worse things befall him. Worse than his worst nightmares. 
come upon him in verse 30. Right? He's, he's cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. So that's one part of the way in which he viewed his Lord. But the second part is in that language, he is, thou art a hard man, a severe man, harsh man. Um, that too, right? this idea of him being stern, this is absolutely false. This is a complete mis misrepresentation of the Lord, of his Lord. And everything in this passage shows to the contrary. He is, in fact, an incredibly generous Lord. Generous beyond all proportions. Generous in giving him the privilege and responsibilities of serving him. The, the, the generosity of giving him of his, the Lord's own resources in order to, to employ them. And indeed, the Lord expresses delight to give. And then, if that's not enough, the, the, the two servants, one with five, another with two talents, the, service, the servants handled what the Lord says are a few things. He, they, they've handled appropriately just, just a few things. You know, they haven't done anything overwhelmingly significant. And yet he, out of the abundant generosity of his own heart, makes them ruler over many things. Right? This is the fullness, the opulence, the generosity, the goodness of, of the Lord's own heart. And what does he do? They're discharging their responsibility over a few little things. He causes them to enter in to the joy of of their Lord. The fact is, this Lord is one who is abundantly generous. But the wickedness and the perversity of this servant's heart distorted, twisted, maligned in his own mind who the Lord is. This takes us, doesn't it, to root problems within your own hearts and the temptations which we, we all face. How do we think about our Lord? Right? That, that's where we need to go. Not just what do I do and not do, but why do I do it? And how is that why influenced by what I see and know of my Lord? How we think of the Lord fuels our response to him. And the gospel teaches us, and everything that's revealed to us in the scriptures instructs us to view our Lord as one who is overwhelmingly generous, that he delights to bestow his gifts, that indeed when he comes to reward his people, he does, what, he does so with super abundance, completely out of proportion with the service that they've rendered. Why? Because of the opulence of his grace. This is our Lord. And if we are thinking biblically about him, if we're seeing clearly who he is, if we're being led to, uh, to, to, to approach him as he's revealed himself, it causes the gracious heart, the believing heart, to swell with love. What a Lord. And indeed, what a privilege to have such a Lord. And that, in turn, fuels the believer's actions out of that love for, for their generous Lord to serve and to do all that would serve his interests, that would please him, that would delight him, that advances his cause, his kingdom, and so on. And notice what the, 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 the unfaithful servant does. It's the same as every unfaithful servant. 
he blames others. You know, he's indolent, worthless, and yet he attributes the fault to everyone else. No, that's not quite accurate, is it? The text says that he chiefly attributes the fault to the Lord himself. Why did I do what I did? Because of who you are. Because of who you are. It's your fault that I'm bringing you back the one talent that you gave me. He attacks the Lord himself. And what happens? Because it's wickedness and it's sinfulness and it's delusion and a heart that is deceived and so on, his very excuses are the, are the testimony that condemns him. His very excuses are the words that, that condemn him. And so at the heart of this, we have the Lord's generosity. The Lord's generosity. That too is featuring front and center in this passage. But then thirdly, we have the Lord's goodness connected to generosity, but distinguished. The Lord's goodness. We've noted already the contrast between the one the joy on one side and the weeping and gnashing of teeth on, on the other. If we, in fact, focus on ourselves, we're being told we will lose all. If we focus on ourselves, we'll lose all. If we focus on the Lord and his interests, we gain all. The, the, the opposite. The goodness of the Lord. Notice, notice what, what we see about the Lord himself in the nature of the reward. Notice what the Lord is revealing to us about himself in the nature of the reward. He says, you, to both the one with five and the one with two, you will be made ruler over many things. Now this is interesting because he's rewarding them with more service. Notice that? He's not saying, here's a ticket, you know, to the Bahamas and you have your own island and a mansion and, you know, all the food you could ever want and so on and so forth or a Swiss bank account. He rewards them with more service. So this, this further reinforces the whole idea of privilege, the privilege of serving because it's described as a reward. And so he's giving to these faithful servants greater opportunities of serving him, which they think of in terms of, of reward, the ability to do even more for his glory, more responsibility that is, in fact, entrusted at us, more investing of ourselves further in Christ's cause still not our own. We're still not given, as it were, what we can claim for ourselves. It's still for Christ's cause. In verse 29, unto everyone that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. He shall have abundance. Again, the Lord's opulence, his, his goodness is being displayed here. Now, there are those, you know, we've all thought it, I'm sure, at different times, those who profess the Lord's name. 
oh, I wish I had more opportunities for service. You know, I wish I could serve the Lord in different ways, in better ways, in higher ways, in more ways, and so on and so forth. If you don't learn anything else from this parable, even a surface reading of this parable teaches you, you must use what you have been given. Right here, right now, without any additions whatsoever, the things that have been entrusted by the Lord to your stewardship in all of their far-reaching um, variety, you must use those right now. And this is the problem. We think, well, I don't, I don't want to use that right now. I want to do something more, something better. I want to do something else. And that's never coming. We have to be faithful in the little in order to be given much. We have to be faithful in the little things in order to receive more from the Lord. Now, this is true by way of application, both in time and in eternity, mind you. So it's true in time that the Lord, when we, by his grace, through the help of the Holy Spirit, are able to see what we have as the Lord's goods, and we're viewing him in his generosity with love, and are therefore pursuing his own interests and cause, then the Lord in time, in this world, gives us more and more opportunity. The Lord loves his own glory. So anyone who is seeking to glorify him and is indeed glorifying him in various capacities, the Lord is always going to fuel that. He's always going to bless that. He's going to multiply that. He's always going to honor that so that we have more and more opportunities to give him more and more glory, which is our chief end and what is due un, unto, unto the Lord. But it's also true, of course, in eternity as well, that, that what we do in this life uh, is reflected in the benefit and blessings that we receive in the life to come. We'll come back to that in a second. So we see that those who are rulers over many things are rewarded with more service. Secondly, you see, in terms of the Lord's goodness, that the servants have a share in the joy of their Lord, right? The language in verse 21, enter thou not into your joy, but enter thou into the joy of thy Lord, the Lord's own joy. And so if, if the believer is focusing on the Lord's cause, focusing on the Lord's aims, on what pleases him, on what promotes his kingdom, on what he himself rejoices over rather than on themselves, like the wicked servant, then the Lord says you will be re rewarded with joy. Entering into the Lord's own joy. So again, it's all the Lord everywhere, everywhere you turn in this passage. So that even the reward of having joy is entering into his joy, the Lord's own joy. In other words, think of it this way. If you make your joy what is Christ's joy, you make your joy what is Christ's joy, then he will make his joy yours. And indeed, that joy will be multiplied accordingly because it's the limitless joy that belongs to the Lord himself. 
Notice that basically the same thing is said to, to, to the commendation is the same to both the one with five talents and the one with two talents. So there's not a proportionate dispersal of talents. One's given five, one's given two, one's given one. There's diversity there according to the Lord's own wisdom. But they're not rewarded according to the number of talents they were given. They're rewarded proportionate to the service that they rendered. Proportionate to the service that they rendered with what the Lord had given to them. Five is made five, and in the other case, two is made two. But in both cases, it's well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few. You're going to be given, made ruler over many. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. And so a person who thinks, well, I have, you know, I'm little. I'm just a child. I have so much that's underdeveloped. And I, you know, there's so little I can do for Christ's cause. The Lord's coming and saying, it doesn't matter. Even those who are, have in God's providence been handicapped in a number of ways and whatever else it may be where outwardly you think like there's limitations and I'm just mentioning those to as as examples of what you would think of as obvious limitations the Lord is saying no within your station and position and ability and capacity and in the gifts and graces that the Lord's given the strength the energy the health the mental uh, learning whatever else it is that the Lord's given your resources when that is used and improved by God's grace for his glory, it is that that is rewarded. Not how much is done, but what is done with what is given to us. The proportion, as it were, according to the proportion of what has been given to us. So there's no reason for any believer, whatever their situation or station may be, to think to themselves, well, I'm, I lose somehow. The Lord's saying, you, you don't lose. However few things the Lord has given, those employed for his glory receive his blessing, receive his, his reward, receive the privilege of his, his joy. And this, of course, consummates at, at glory in, in heaven itself where we really understand what it means um, to enter into the joy, right? Because the absence of joy is sadness, misery. Misery is connected to sin. It always flows from sin. In heaven, there is no sin. Sin is completely eradicated. Souls of believers are perfect. Their bodies are perfect after the resurrection. Their whole person is perfect. They are in the perfect place, in the perfect company, before a perfect Lord, beholding all of his glory. There's nothing but joy. There's nothing, nothing other than pure, never-ending, ever-increasing, as you know, joy in the Lord's presence. It's known in this world by the fruit of the Spirit. It'll be known in glory in all of its perfection. In all of this, we see something about the Lord himself, the Lord's goodness. His goodness to his people. His goodness within the economy of his own kingdom and within the plan of his own cause in this world. 
And so we, we really end where we, we began. I said at the beginning that, that there are certain things that come more prominently to the surface when we transition our thought and attention, our focus to the Lord of the parable and not just to, to the servants. We see that he, we see that they are his, the talents are his, they're his goods. We see that he is abundantly generous. We see his goodness, even in the way in which he rewards his people. To see him, if we can just see him, if God, by the Spirit, through the ministry of the Word, would only enable you to see him as he's revealing himself, then you would be brought to love him. And to love him more is what is going to fuel all of our pursuits for his cause and glory. Jesus gives us encouragement when he says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you're the branches, he that abideth in me, and I in him. The same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. Beginning to end, top to bottom, inside and out, the source is the Lord himself. Even the grace to employ the talents that he gives us is given by him in union with him, in dependence upon him, in sweet fellowship and communion with him. He is really all in all. And everything exists, as we, as we read in Revelation 4, it was created by him, and every bit of it was created for his own pleasure. And it is sheer privilege that we are given the opportunity to serve him in whatever way he calls us. May he receive the glory and the praise. Let's stand for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, we come again away from this holy word that has been given to us. And we are led, as we are always led, to say, what a God, what a Lord we have, to have Christ set before us with tokens of mercy, which blessings. We rejoice, O Lord, at the prospects and privileges of serving the great King. Give to us, we pray, a sight of that glory, of thy goodness, of thy generosity, of thine ownership of all that there is. And may our hearts swell with love and devotion and affectionate attachment and desire to please by grace. For we ask this in Jesus' name.